My name is Craig, senior pastor around here. And today, I just have one thing I'm trying to get done. One thing. I hope this morning you feel inspired and empowered to find where you belong at Compass Church. My intention this morning is to inspire you and then empower you to move from casual to committed and then from committed to connected. Now, I feel it too. We stand at the mouth of two rivers converging that make what I just said scary and strange. We stand in a moment where there are two things that have been happening for an awfully long time that make me saying, hey, let's move from casual to committed and then from committed to connected sound nuts. And I just want to remind you, we didn't start the fire. But we're going to fight it. Ryan started the fire. Yeah, that's right. About three office fans got that. What am I talking about? Church is growing more and more foreign and strange. And if you've been following any like Pew Research or data out there, church attendance is in a rapid decline. We're just not joining church. Seems very odd and strange. A couple weeks ago, I was talking to denominational leaders, leaders in our own network of churches. And they were just like, yeah, I mean, people just don't go to church anymore. I was like, but they, they go to pickleball. It's not like people stopped gathering. But something has happened to where church just seems absolutely foreign. So I want to make a case over the next four weeks for this beautiful thing we call church. We are preparing for September 17th. We're going to have an unusual service where we work to help you get connected, to find where you belong. This is all preparation for September 17th. We're building toward that. What in the world am I talking about? We've got to talk about these two rivers that make church feel strange. We're all very skeptical of churches. We've got to talk about that. And then we've got to talk about two what's and a how. The two what's and a how of church. Before we can even do that, we've got to face an obstacle. Those obstacles are those two rivers. One is secularism, and the other is abuse. Secularism and abuse. Let's start with secularism. About 100 years ago or so, give it, well, no, not 200 years ago or so, ideas from the Enlightenment were starting to come into fruition in the American culture. Ideas from the Enlightenment. Have you ever read John Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath? It's a, it's a weird book. It's awesome. But there's a, there's, it's broken up into poems. And one of the poems describes a farmer who used to walk the land. And he used to feel his feet on the soil. And he used to be able to bend down and touch the earth. And he had a relationship. Farmer, 
land. There's a deep sense of connection and meaning. Steinbeck says, though, those days are gone. And actually what replaced that farmer was a giant corporation that comes in not as a farmer walking the land where he's lived and he's lived for generations, but a giant company sends a tractor in. And there's a new farmer in the tractor, and the, he has no relationship to the land, doesn't care about it. He's from somewhere else. And there's just a sense of a loss of connection. And what happens to the original farmer? Well, he has, he's got to move to the city to find a job. And so what happened when he moved to the city to find a job? Disconnection. He lived in these communities for many years. He was deeply connected. Now he's in a new place, and he's to survive. So a ton of new communities popped up to meet the need to, to help this person find connection and a sense of meaning. And those things were things like the, the Masons, the Elk, the, what is it, the Elks Lodge, the NAACP. All these medium-sized communities pop up in cities and suburbs around America, and people, all of a sudden, they come around, around a vision and they come around a sense of doing something, and they, there's connection, and we're working towards something. There's connection, and there's meaning and purpose, and it's great. But then, those started dwindling because they're competing with another American ideal, individualism. Who are you to tell me who I am, what I think, and how I should feel about things? I'm my own person. And so you can trace America's isolationism with the decline of things like the PTA. It's actually incredible. America's getting more and more isolated and fewer and fewer parents are joining the PTA. They don't want to be involved in their community. And actually, they start other, other branches. Like, there's the PTO. Like, you know, we have better ideas about how to do things. And America's getting more and more isolated. As American society has gotten more and more isolated, the church has really just mirrored that. We just followed that. And what happens? Economics takes over. What? Think about, think about how we treat ourselves and each other. We treat each other like, like cattle. We track our steps. We track our calories. We, we, we have more data about a day in my life than I do probably about my grandfather's entire life. We're just tracking everything we do, and we want to be the most productive we can be. One of the most popular YouTube channels out there are productivity hacks. We've got to make, make, make. We've got our brand. We've got to care about our brand and who we are and how we're received in the world. And as a result, there are very few places in American culture where you and I can go where we're not trying to be bought and sold. All of a sudden, church is like, hey, that, we're that place. Are we? Churches get bigger and better, and it just feels like it's mirroring all that's happening. That's the air we breathe. That's one of the rivers we're staring at, where church now is like, why would I join that? This seems really restrictive. How are you saying this is going to help me flourish? I'm going to flourish on my own. You can imagine what happens when people with that mindset come to church. Yeah, I'll, I'll be discipled. I'll grow as a Christian, but I want my needs met as defined by me. Who are you to tell me what I need? Ah! That's one river that we are staring. But it's met by another river. And the other river is church abuse. America's largest denomination was investigated just a few years ago by the SEC for how they handle money. 
I don't know if you know this, but churches and government, there is, and I know this from people who've worked in both churches and government, there is great intention for the federal government to stay out of religious matters. They're like, that just, that just becomes a headline. We don't want to mess with it. Imagine what you have to do to get investigated by the SEC for money as a church. Not good! Abuse scandals are left and right. People we knew, listened to, and trusted all of a sudden are like Jack the Ripper behind closed doors. And that's just big picture. When it comes to like on a local level, there are people in this room. There are friends that you and I have who have had experiences of pastors where they've been publicly shamed, They've been humiliated. They have, they have endured like what we could easily call psychological abuse because they stood in the way. They had questions. They didn't know what was going on, so they asked questions. How dare you? Aren't you loyal? Ooh. I mean, I, I have, in past lives, broken up fist fights between pastors before I went out at a church service. I have met pastors who've showed me like their, their like photo stream and just like, holy cow, are you a pastor? Like this doesn't look like pastory things. There was just this massive disconnect. And who gets hurt in the process? Everybody in the pews. I uh, went to Mizzou's football practice last night. They just asked me to show them a few things. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I had no idea what was going on. It was amazing. But the last time I was at Faro was when I was getting my COVID shot. And it felt like World War I, right? Like this is a football stadium. All of a sudden there's like people in hazmat suits and like, nur, nur. like, like whoa, that was the last time I'm there. I go last night, there's like bounce houses, like, we're having fun. I was like, this is weird. That's church for a lot of folks. There's a lot of people who believe in God they want to grow, but they just can't imagine church playing any part in that. Because what has church been for them? A place with hazmat suits and danger. This morning, I hope to inspire and empower you to move from casual to committed and from committed to connected. <laughs> How are you doing? This, we didn't start the fire, but this is where we stand. This is our moment. You don't get to pick your moment. This is what we got handed. For so many of us, it's a ball of yarn that feels impossible to untangle. It's a garden where weeds have grown up and they're pretty nasty. But I'm not ready to pour concrete and go over that garden just yet. I legitimately believe that our flourishing through a local church is possible. I believe that we, who either have been hurt by secularism or by church abuse, I believe we can find healing in a church. And I believe that as a church, there's a beautiful path forward. I believe that church is actually a hope for the world. And I'm not ready to give up on that just yet. 
So over the, ne- the course of the next four weeks, our hope is to move from casual. Well, yeah, I come here. No one knows me. But I've been coming every week, twice a month. To committed. Hey, this is my home. And then from committed to connected, I am known here. There's only one way I know how to do that. We got to build trust. All right, like someone yelling at you, join! <laughs> I mean, my join. I wouldn't want you to join that. We got to build trust. Our mental health and sense of connection is directly correlated to our ability to share our story cohesively. Our mental health and our sense of connection is directly correlated to our ability to share our story cohesively. When we are moving from casual to committed to connected, we don't share everything up at once. We share a little bit. And we build trust. And as trust is being built, we share a little more. Over the next four weeks, my hope is that wherever you are, if you're very skeptical, we move you just a little bit toward, I can see that. And if you're at, I can see that, we move you to, this might be possible. We're just moving baby steps. But the hope is that you find connection here at Compass. And that you truly believe you belong here. How we doing? All right. We got a tall order. Let's turn our Bibles to Acts chapter 2. That's, that's the challenge. If we're really going to be a place where you feel you belong, we've got to talk about the two what's and a how. Two what's. What in the world is church? What is it? What are we doing here? And how? How in the world do we do that? If we're really going to navigate through this, we've got to answer those two what's and how. Acts chapter 2 provides that. Acts chapter 2, I'm going to start in verse 42. And if you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. We're going to read to verse 47. They, that is the church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. God, if we're going to really experience connection, we need your help. God, this problem is big. God, the air we breathe, the culture around us, shapes and forms us in a way 
where we think we've got it on our own. And someone saying, no, let's, let's be an us, feels restrictive. God, many of us have experienced hurt and real pain, and we didn't even think there was a way around this. So God, if we're going to move forward, we need your help. Spirit, I pray your presence would overwhelm this place. I ask all these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. You can have a seat to what's and a how. If we're really going to understand what it is we're doing here, we've got to name what it is we're doing here. What is a church? What do we do? What are we all about? I told you uh, last night we went to Mizzou's football practice. I had never, I've never been to a college football practice before. I've never been to any kind of football practice before. From my untrained eye, it looked like utter chaos. There were like 300 people just on the field running around. There were children. There were like these like 12-year-old boys. I don't know. They might have been like 20. I have no idea at this age. But there were like these 12-year-old boys. Like they're ball boys. They're running around. They're throwing things. There's like 10 quarterbacks. It's like, how big are football teams? Like this is like, this is like the town I grew up in just on a field. Like this is crazy. And then I thought like, what if I was the coach? If I was the coach, this would be a colossal waste of time. This would just be like, we just got a bunch of people on a field and we all ran around together. Like, what in the world? And then, coach comes out. And you can just see the visor glowing from the stands. And all of a sudden, there's order. And you see, oh, there's like intentionality and stuff that's going on here. Oh, they're not just getting people together to waste time. They really know what's going on. My concern is that church is a lot like practice can feel like. We're just running around together. We come to church. Why do we come to church? We've always come to church. Well, okay, so... What happens if we don't come to church? I don't know, but we feel terrible. Okay, so let's keep coming to church. There may be a better option out there. Great coaches, great coaches can navigate that chaos of a practice with great intentionality. I think about the greatest college coach ever. Wait, I heard it. John Wooden, thank you. Yeah, John Wooden. I don't know who, whatever you said, but it's wrong. John Wooden, the winningest college sports coach ever, famously would start his practices by taking all these players who are now playing at a D1 school. They were the best players in their high school. And what's the first practice? How to put on socks. Can you imagine that? You're Bill Walton in his heyday, you know, and you're coming to play with John Wooden. And what's practice number one? All right, when you put on your socks, you want to really want to mind your big toe. The big toe is what's really going to trip you up. So you're going to want to be careful as you bring the fabric around your big toe. Now, when you do that, you're going to want to be really mindful of the small toe. It's like, what is happening? Coach understood that if your socks aren't on right, feet are going to get blisters. And if your feet are going to get blisters, the other team's going to outrun you. This morning is our Vince Lombardi, this is a football moment. I swear, I don't, I'm not obsessed with sports. Like people are like, jeez, this guy's like a meathead. I swear, I don't, didn't have, I've watched the Super Bowl with people in here and they were whispering things that were happening. I was like, how did they know that? This is a church. Acts chapter 2 defines it. How does Acts chapter 2 define the church? Church is where we learn loving presence. Church is where we learn loving presence. 
What do I mean by that? Look with me again at verse 42. They, church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's what we're doing right now. As we open our Bibles, we're saying, hey, we want to orient our lives around God's word. We're devoted to that. What else, though? Keep reading. And to fellowship. There are some words in our culture that are beyond redemption. Like, we thought it meant that, didn't mean that, and then it got out, like, literally. You're never going to reclaim, like, the, like, grammar nerds out there who are like, that's not actually what literally means. Like, literally does not just mean seriously. Oh, it's too late. The word is gone. Fellowship is another one of those words. Fellowship, for a lot of people, just means hanging out. I went to church and we experienced fellowship. It's almost like, you know, if you have a bunch of geese, a bunch of geese together becomes a gaggle. Well, a bunch of Christians come together and it's just fellowship. That's not fellowship. A lot of people think fellowship is just, hey, we just, I just got together with a bunch of Christians and we talked news, sports, weather. When Luke, under the inspiration of God the Spirit, says the early church devoted themselves to fellowship. I don't know what picture pops up in your mind, but it does not mean, hey, Rick, what did you do this week? Nothing. Isn't fellowship great? That's just, that's casual. And there's a place for casual relationships. Gosh, you need, casual relationships keep you sane. You cannot be everybody's best friend. And as we get to know people, small talk is a skill. That's wonderful. That's not what's happening here, though. Devoted to fellowship. Fellowship comes from the same word we get house. What Luke is talking about is there is a knitting together of lives. They devoted themselves to saying, hey, let's become this new one thing. Loving presence. Being together. Presence is an end in itself. Aaron, do you have your phone with you? Can I see it? Great. Thank you, Aaron. This is Aaron's phone. As everyone, everyone's familiar, these are phones. This is a phone. Did you all just feel something shift when I took this out? Am I as present now as I was 30 seconds ago? No, why? Because something more important than you might happen. And I just got to be ready for it. So when we talk to people and they're always talking like this, oh, hey, here's what's happening in my life. How was your week? That's not presence. And we can feel it when we're not experiencing it. It's like, yeah, I, how much should I commit to this conversation? Because you might be out of here in any time. It's like the Russian roulette of relationships. Thanks, Aaron. You also have a great background. Presence is an end in itself. We were created for connection. The church is the place where we experience and learn loving presence. It's greatly intentional that as Luke is describing this new thing called a church, what's one of the first things they commit themselves to? This one anotherness, being together. The word community, another word that's probably beyond redemption. 
But what community means is we're a group of people with a shared identity. We, are, we have a shared identity. We are knitting our lives together and we are, uh, we're devoted to that. The word for devotion can also be attached. They attach themselves to the apostles' teaching. They attach themselves to this idea of loving presence. Attachment. No expectation of reciprocity. What in the world does that mean? Remember when Yogi Berra said this? Go to your friends' funerals so they go to yours. That's reciprocity. I do for you, I get something back. If we have an expectation of I'm, I'm doing something for you, I'm going to be present because I hope you're going to be present back with me. We have not experienced an attachment. Oh, that's the air we breathe. Almost all of our relationships are about this. We live in a world that is about contracts. I need my lawn mowed. You need to get paid. We come together. I pay you money. You mow your lawn. You got what you want. I got what I wanted. That's just the world we live in. That's not always how it's been, though, you know. There are people in this room who are old enough to remember you could buy a house with a handshake. Some of you are like, I would never do that. You shouldn't. I am not advocating you should do that. I'm not like, and then let's all go do that. Like, that's a great way to get ripped off. But the reason you could do that is because there was relationship. When relationships fade, we need rules. That's how we need to function together. And, and that's fine. Look, with globalization, people move. They're far more, like, you, you need, we need some, like, here's how we're going to be together. But I do think a church should be a little different. This is the one place where we're not trying to buy and sell. You know, it's free to belong to a church, right? Didn't you just take a tithe? It's a free will offering. We are the original crowdfunded organization. But it's not under obligation at all. We're not trying to get anything from you. Jesus pays our salaries. Freely we receive, freely we give. What are we trying to do? We are trying to be a place that learns and experiences loving presence. That's what, number one. What's a football? What's a church? It's where we learn loving presence. What number two? What's a church? A church is where we are transformed by loving presence. So not only do we learn and we experience loving presence, no one wants anything from us here. Being together is an end in itself. The early church what just happened to them in the previous chapter? Or the, earlier in the chapter? God's Spirit came and dwelled with them. Now God lives in the church. So what do we do? We practice presence. Because we believe that loving presence transformed us when God showed up. And we want to be a part of other people's transformation. So not only do we learn it though, it also becomes the means through which we experience transformation. There are a lot of people who will tell you how you need to grow. Lots of people have understandings and expectations. This is how you mature. A lot of us, a lot of us carry bad ideas about what it means to mature and grow. 
We just don't know. No one's ever pointed us in a direction. How do you mature and grow? Loving presence. Preaching is great. I believe through preaching, you can experience God's presence in real and tangible ways. I have experienced that. Preaching will not create maturity in your life. Let me say that again. Preaching can create repentance. Preaching can overwhelm you with God's goodness and his grace. It can rearrange your belief system, but it will not create maturity in your life. How many people do we know who can rattle off systematic theologies, humongous words, and they're jerks, and they're emotionally children? Why is that? It's because they're banking on sermons to do all the work that it was never meant to do. A sermon is meant to inspire and empower you into the next thing, which is loving presence. We are transformed by loving presence, not through just hearing True words. Look with me in Ephesians chapter 4. This is now Paul's plan for how the church is to mature. Paul has spent the first three chapters of Ephesians telling us the story of Jesus. How we're now in Christ. That's a phrase that's used again and again in Ephesians. That's presence. We are so deeply connected to Jesus. It's like we're in Jesus' presence. What's the first set of instructions? After this story is completed, first thing we need to know and do after we experience this presence, verse 1, as a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. That sounds like odd instructions if loving presence isn't how we grow. What do we need to experience this loving presence? Humility. We can't truly be present without humility. The word for humility, I love this definition. The word that Paul uses, the definition of humility is this. The quality of not being overly impressed by one's own sense of self-importance. What's humility? It doesn't mean we never think about ourselves. Like, oh, I'm the worst. Humility means this. We are not overly impressed by our own sense of our importance. Have you ever talked to someone where it's like, man, I was just in a car accident. Let me tell you about a car accident I was in once. Like, ah, cool. That did not create the connection you thought it would. (laughs) Or the people who are just like, man, I'm going through this. Well, you know what you ought to do? People that rush to fix it mode. That's not humility. That sounds like people who are unaware of their own sense of their self-importance. The actress, Kristen Bell, I think she summed it up really well. This is like a common grace definition of humility. She said this, If you want to help someone use their superpowers, don't show them yours, show them theirs. Loving presence, not only is what we learn, but it's how we learn. When there are humble people around us who are not ready to say, well, look at everything I know, they hear our stories. They see us. That's all presence stuff. And that's happening. I am not trying to say, let's pull the e-brake, stop everything we've been doing in the history of this church. It's all garbage. 
No, no, no. That's been happening. It's been happening in beautiful and anonymous ways. There are people in this congregation who they see needs and not needs as defined by them. Well, you know, if I was in their shoes, I would need this. They see needs and they rush to meet those. There are people in this room who have bought lawnmowers for other people in this room. And I know that person A bought person B a lawnmower and person B doesn't know who person A is. That's really cool. That's really cool. There are people in this room who have sold property to other people in this room at a loss because they're trying to meet needs. There are also people in this room. There's a single mom among us who was in a car accident. And when I was hearing all the details about this, I was told she has a, a, a toddler. And I was like, oh, like, who's taking care of the toddler? Like, oh, don't worry, it's being taken care of. And I didn't think anything of it. Okay, cool. And then we're on a family walk. We're walking around and we walk past someone who goes here's house. And we're hanging out. And who comes walking out of the house? That toddler. Holy cow. Loving presence is happening here. It's so easy. It's so easy to see bad things taking place and to just get fixated on those. And I'm not minimizing. We must tell our stories, painful parts included. You will not experience healing if you bury. Likewise, though, it's way too easy to just see the bad. Way too easy. And some churches have master's degrees in just pointing out bad. But if we are going to be this, this loving presence community, we have to point it out when we see it. That's why one of the classes we're offering this semester is learning to share your story. Because again, there is a direct correlation between your mental health and your connection with your ability to share your story in a way that's cohesive. Not all over the place. You understand how God's been working. Super important. If we don't share our stories, they lose meaning. Do you understand that? People walk through things really hard. They're like, what was that? Hmm. We share our stories. And we do it with people who are humble. Now, I have a tremendous amount of hope. In 2,000 years, this church has become a ball of yarn that's very tangled up and very messy and very painful. But Paul is writing to the church in their infancy. And look at what he says again in verse 2. Gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love. Paul knows it's hard. There are people that you do not want to connect with. There are people who are a pain in the butt. There are people who, no matter how many times we go through it, it's like, again, they just keep talking about themselves. They never see us. And so the two what's, what's one what? We have to learn loving presence. What's the other what? We're transformed by loving presence. Then how do we do that? We got to hang in there. We got to hang in there. It's too easy to quit. Too easy. And what happens when you quit, which is fine. You can quit anytime. But what happens when you quit? You don't get to see what happens when you hang in there. I 
have experienced a fair share of conflict at this church. And one of the most faith-building experiences I got to have was when somebody who created an awful lot of conflict came to me and apologized. I can't, un, unannounced, they just, I was like, oh, that was a bummer. And they just came with like, hey, I said this, I did this, and it was wrong, and I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> what? I mean, I was like, wait a minute, wait, wait, what? Like, I, 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 what's happening to me? I don't, I, what? That's rare. And that doesn't always happen. But it never happens if you don't stick around. I cannot promise you that if you find your place where you belong in this church, that there will be no pain in that process. Church is messy. Anytime you get a group of people together who their own self-identity is, I, I have, I'm someone who has sinned. And you get a bunch of those people together, it gets a little messy. It's crazy sometimes. I can promise you and point you in the direction of one place, though, that's always orderly. There's no chaos and there's no messes. It's a cemetery. You want peace, you want order. It's the only place I'm aware that can really deliver on that promise. The chaos means we're alive. Oh, and it's hard. And some things only heaven can fix. But we get to experience a sampling of that in this thing we call the church. And it's all about loving presence. That's who we are. It's what we do. If there's anybody, if there's anybody who should not have to practice loving presence, but who just should just be receiving loving presence, it's children. Children, I mean, are people that we have to say, okay, look, we know you don't get it, but we're just going to pour into you until you, something pours out. All right? We don't expect you to give us loving presence, but we're just going to really focus on helping you understand loving presence so that you get it. There was one child who has become a hero of mine. Her name is Ruby Bridges. She was a child who is someone that should have been on the receiving end of loving presence. That was not Ruby Bridges' experience, though. Ruby Bridges was a six-year-old girl in New Orleans in 1959. Ruby Bridges should have experienced adults who said, hey, we're here to create a loving presence for you. We're here to teach you that the world, yeah, there's bumps and stuff, but it's a joyful place. Instead, Ruby Bridges experienced some of the darkest side of adults as a six-year-old. I have a seven-year-old, and it's terrifying to imagine what Ruby experienced. What was Ruby's crime? She was black. Ruby, Brown versus Board of Education, had passed years earlier, and Ruby was now allowed to move across town to a school that had a lot of resources, an all-white school. So her parents decided, hey, we think this is important. We're going to send you to this school. When her parents drove up on the first day, they thought they heard a Mardi Gras celebration. It was loud. It was boisterous. When they got out of their car, there was no party. 
It was adults protesting her presence there. She had to be escorted into school by U.S. Marshals. That's sick. That's evil. What were some of the things she heard? There was an adult, adult, who had a coffin with a black doll in it and would hold it up for Ruby to see. There was another adult who said, I'm going to poison you. Prompting the U.S. Marshals to say, hey, Ruby, you can't eat any food here. You've got to bring food from home. You know how quick children are to blame themselves. Children of divorce, what's one of the first things you have to do with children of divorce? This isn't your fault. What happened to Ruby? Her school, she's allowed to go. Nobody attends. It was literally her. Parents pulled all their kids out, and she's in a ghost town called school. Bye-bye loving presence. Now, this story so moved a child psychiatrist that he came and volunteered his services to work with her and to help her experience healing. There was only one teacher, a teacher from Boston, Massachusetts, Mrs. Hunter, who would agree to be in the building and teach her a child while this is happening. So she goes to that school year, day after day, she keeps coming in, and day after day, the protesters are outside. Robert Coles tells the story, though, from a different angle. He talks about how Ruby had faith in Christ that informed her every move that year. She's six years old. Mrs. Hunter would watch her every day and be like, this girl is really peaceable. She doesn't seem anxious. What? It's like, this is like superhuman. Like, what is happening here? One day, Ruby's a little late. So Mrs. Hunter's like, where is she? You know, it's a dangerous situation. She looks out the window and she sees Ruby coming. And Ruby, standing in the midst of all the protesters with the U.S. Marshals. There were pictures that tried to capture this. This was painted by Norman Rockwell. And it, it hung in the White House for many years. But Ruby is standing in the midst of her protest. This, by the way, is an edited picture of that. There's a terrible word that's above her head that I didn't feel right showing. But if you want to see the real picture, you can just Google it. Ruby is facing people who are supposed to be creating loving presence for her. And Mrs. Hunter is watching from the window. And she sees Ruby talking. And she's just like, oh no. And the protesters are getting louder and louder. So Ruby finally comes in. And Mrs. Hunter's like, what were you doing? Ruby's like, this is dangerous. Like, what's happening? She's like, why were you talking to them? She goes, I, I wasn't talking to them. No, I, I saw you from the window. What were you saying to them? I didn't say anything to them. She goes, well, who were you talking to? I was praying. Well, what were you praying? Here's what she said. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Who does that sound like? Sounds an awful lot like this guy, Jesus of Nazareth. We see a six-year-old girl, a child, who's supposed to be on the receiving end of loving presence. She's able to stand in the midst of great fear, great hostility, great danger, and offer loving presence. And what happens to all of us? We get hope.
maybe this loving presence might be real. And then we look back at the cross and we say, I think this whole thing is loving presence. I think the whole story of the Bible is just pointing us toward God's loving presence. That he came. Emmanuel, God with us. And then how is he with us? On a cross. Praying, Father, forgive us. We don't know what we do. Church is where we learn loving presence. It's also where we're transformed by loving presence. So one of the things that we're doing in this season, we're trying, is we're going to celebrate communion every week. We're trying it. Seeing how it's working. Paul says that we celebrate communion to remember that moment of loving presence, Jesus on the cross. Why do we need to remember it? We're forgetful. We can be just like an MU football practice, according to Craig. I'll just run around. Ah! Paul's like, no, we got to remember who we are and what we're doing here. That we were transformed by God's loving presence. One of my hopes this morning as we take communion is that we really would experience his presence in real and new ways. There are two things, I believe, that energize churches. Baptisms are one of them. I can't tell you how energizing last week and today was. God is on the move. He ain't done. That's good. That, That gives us hope. That keeps our britches in between the ditches. There's another thing that energizes a church. Communion. Communion. Where we experience God's presence in different ways than we normally would. In Deuteronomy 12, when the children of Israel are getting instructions for all the sacrifices and all the offerings, it says this in Deuteronomy 12, verse 6. And this is what I hope can be our posture in communion today. Listen to this. Listen to the where. Where are they supposed to do all these meals and sacrifices? Where? And then what does it create? Listen for the where. Here we go. There. Where's there? There, bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, what you have vowed to give and your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. There. Where's there? In the presence of the Lord your God. You and your family shall eat. We're going to eat in a second. And then what's the next part? And rejoice. Eat and rejoice. Why? Because we're in God's presence. We believe Jesus is present with believers, and he's present in a special way when we take communion. And if you want me to explain that, I have no idea how to explain it. But my prayer this morning is that you would feel his presence and you would experience the joy of his presence. Communion fosters joy because he's with us. So in a moment, the band is going to play and you can get up from your seats. There's two tables in the front, one in the back. Two tables in the front have gluten-free options. The one in the back does not. We ask that if you are a believer in Jesus, that you participate. If you're not a believer in Jesus, just give it time. Just be curious. What's happening around the room? This is for everybody who Jesus has accepted. 
this is a chance to experience his presence. So I'm going to pray in a moment. Get up, we'll grab the elements, and we'll come back together to take them. God, we live in a world where we know adults don't always care for children. We live in a world where spiritual authorities don't always care for people in the pews. We live in a world where churches hurt and disappoint people. And God, that's the world you came to. On the cross, you made us whole. God, I pray that we would experience your presence in new and fresh ways and that that would create joy this morning. We ask for your help. In Jesus' name. This podcast is part of the ministry of Compass Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, please check out compasscfc.com.